What I find, Andrea, is what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, right? They want to read a book and at the end, like, oh, okay, done, got that, you know, or go to a workshop or a talk and walk in feeling like an imposter and leave not feeling like an imposter, right? And that's not how it works. The feelings are the last change. So my really mantra is the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 573 with guest Valerie Young. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Happy New Year. It's the first podcast episode of the year, and I'm so excited, and I feel slightly guilty that I don't have like a new year, new you podcast episode for you, but if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you know that that's usually not what I do. Sometimes I put out an episode where I interview somebody who's really good at goal setting and things like that, and um, I didn't this year. I am focusing on getting guests on that you request. I'm still catching up from last year. I think I'm. I think I've about caught up with all of the topics that you, my listeners, requested. And today is no exception. We have a guest on who is a expert, an expert, uh, and and literally like started an institute around the imposter complex. Valerie Young is here, and I'm excited to finally interview her for the show. I realized, you know, when I saw the the uh, the request come through for imposter complex. I was like, oh, I've had somebody on about that and realized it was Tanya Geisler. And it was, I think, episode 37, which was, it was a minute ago, 10 years ago to be exact. So anyway, it was time to to have somebody on and I'm excited to to dive into this topic. She has some really great information and, and tips. And before we do that, since it's a new year, I just wanted to let you know that I have one opening for coaching. If anybody feels like they need support, with their goals in 2024, or if you're listening to this in the future, maybe it's already spring or something like that. But typically I help women who are, you know, they've got a lot going on in their life, whether it's their career. I do, you know, I have coached some, some um, women that don't work outside of the home, but just they are leaders in some sort of their life, whether it's at the home work, sometimes both. And they have got a lot of the boxes checked off. There's a few things that are they're just struggling with. Sometimes it is having hard conversations and setting boundaries. Sometimes it's getting to the bottom of like, kind of why they feel like shit, but it's not depression. They just want to feel more fulfilled. And that would be values work. And then sometimes it's mindset stuff, just confidence and that not knowing the skill set to be able to get to that next level in your life and also carrying those skills with you. The goal is not so that we do the things that you want to do together during our time together and then that's it. And then once you're on your own, you're back to your old habits. The goal is for you to learn new strategies, tools, ways of being, ways of thinking, ways of behaving so that you can carry it with you. 
if that happens, I'm doing my job well. So anyway, andreaowen.com slash links. And in, in that list of things, you will see a button to fill out an application or go to the coaching page to read more about it. All right. Let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Dr. Valerie Young is the leading thought leader on imposter syndrome and co-founder of Imposter Syndrome Institute. Valerie's work has been cited all around the world, including in Time Magazine, Newsweek, The New York Times, Psychology Today, Science, The Wall Street Journal, O Magazine, and many more. Valerie is author of the award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women and Men, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How They Thrive in Spite of It with Random House and is now available in six languages. So without further ado, here is Dr. Valerie. Dr. Valerie, thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. I I just realized that I haven't had anybody on to talk about imposter syndrome since it was under my first 30 episodes. I thought it had been more recent. And I did a listener survey earlier this year in 2023. And one of the topics was people said, can you have someone on to talk about imposter syndrome? And I said, well, what better what better uh, person to have on than you? I think I mentioned this in my in my invite emailed over, it might've gone to your team, but I quoted you in my second book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. Thank you for for coming on. Can we start? I'm assuming that most of my listeners know what imposter syndrome is, but so many people, when they hear about it for the first time, say, I didn't know it had a name. So for people listening who might not be clear, can you start by just telling us what is it? What does it look like in real life? Sure, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you for having me, Andrea. Uh, Imposter syndrome often gets confused as kind of a fancy term for low Mm self-esteem when they are different. I always tell people, think of self-esteem as this kind of global sense we have about ourselves. But imposter feelings are very specific to achievement arenas, work, school, career, job, business. You don't feel like an imposter when you're walking the dog or, you know, emptying the dishwasher. You might in a meeting with people more senior than you or have a very different skill set than you. Uh, you know, or if you're going on a job interview or you're meeting with a big client, you know, experiences like that or getting constructive feedback. The term imposter phenomena, which is the original terminology, was coined by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes, two clinical psychologists uh, in a journal article in 1978. Uh, I just want to kind of flag the, the term syndrome. Uh, it very quickly morphed into being called imposter syndrome it, really within like four years of their paper coming out. And I don't think it was, including by myself, and I don't think it was because we were now pathologizing it. I think it's because there are two definitions of syndrome. One is the more clinical kind of mental health understanding of it. But the other one, you know, is really comes out of the dictionary, which is most people's frame of reference, which is a set of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that constitute a pattern. And that's how I use the term syndrome, not to diagnose anyone. You should never be running around diagnosing people. You know, with that said, basically what it refers to is this belief that deep down we're really not as intelligent, capable, competent, qualified, talented as other people seem to think that we are. And we have these feelings despite concrete evidence of our actual accomplishments or abilities. So the question is, if you can see the degree on the wall, you can hear your performance review. You can see you landed the big client or the book deal. What's happening? Well, those of us with imposter feelings have become very adept at essentially saying, well, sure, I did it. 
but I can explain all that. So in other words, we externalize our accomplishments. We say, well, they just they said they love my podcast, but that's just because they like me or I was lucky or timing. I had a good connection. And ultimately, you know, central to imposter syndrome, Andrea, is this fear of being found out. Yes. And I, I have found that it can be a little insidious. And, and what I mean by that is a sort of covert, because for the longest time, I didn't think that I really struggled with it. And then I was writing my second book. And I remember thinking, and probably saying out loud to people, oh, now I feel like a success because I truly believe my first book was a fluke. Like it just was like this accident and, you know, and then, okay, the second time, like now I can count myself and see myself as quote unquote successful. So do you see that that happens sometimes? In the music world, you talk about kind of one hit wonders, right? Or if your book is a bestseller right out of the gate or you get some kind of a claim, sometimes there's this fear, like, I don't know how I did it the first time. Mm -hmm. Surely it couldn't have been my talent. Right. How could I possibly replicate that that initial success? When I was a doctoral student, I wrote this paper on white racism that ended up being used on multiple college campuses. I didn't write for probably two years after that mm. because it, I had no idea how that even happened. Right. So yeah. how, how could I like repeat that? One of the things I, I find so interesting about your work is, and there's a really great infographic, I'll link to it in, in the show notes, is you talk about the imposter syndrome coping mechanisms, and there there are seven of them. I think it helps people identify the behaviors that they do to try to kind of cope with or cover up their feelings of imposter syndrome. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, and, and truly credit for that conceptualization goes to Clance and Imes. They identify different, they call them coping and protecting mechanisms. And these are unconscious ways that, you know, something in us has kind of kicked in to help us do two things. One, manage the anxiety of, of waiting to be found out, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And the other one is to actually avoid being found out, protect us from being discovered. So they identified things like holding back. I, I call it flying under the radar. So that the person who maybe doesn't ask questions in meetings or class, uh, doesn't go for more challenging opportunities or assignments, doesn't start their business, doesn't scale their business. You know, if I can kind of keep my head down, do my work, play it safe, mm. they won't find out. On the other end of that continuum is people who overwork, overprepare for everything. And I don't mean here like good old fashioned hard work, but this sense that the only reason I'm successful is that I have to work harder than everyone else to kind of cover up for my supposed ineptness. Years ago, I was on a talk show in Boston to talk about imposter syndrome. And there was a, a medical student there, Karen Brown from BU, Boston University. And the host said, Karen, this is ridiculous. Clearly, you're intelligent. You're a medical student. She said, no, no, not really. I just work harder than the other students. Uh, for someone else, it might be kind of chronically procrastinating on important things. And this is one I always want to be clear about because we all procrastinate. I think we're hardwired to avoid things that are big, hard, difficult, yeah. where to start or they're not very fun. Where it matters is when it can undermine achieving our major work or, or life objectives. So very quick example, young woman wanted this very prestigious internship when she was at university. To get it, she had to complete a very heady application process, a lot of steps, had six months to do it. Do, let's say, you know, November 3rd, when do you think she starts it? 
<laughs> November 2nd, right? right? She gets it in on time, but she doesn't get the internship. How procrastination protects us is we can say to ourselves, well, I'm disappointed, but I'm hardly surprised because I know it didn't reflect my best effort. The rub is if she had been successful, she probably wouldn't have felt deserving. Mm-hmm. And as others, like never starting or finishing uh, various forms of, of self-sabotage, kind of choosing an occupation with kind of a low profile, yeah. ever-changing profile, kind of job hopping, thinking, okay, now I've been here a couple of years, the, the no talent police are going to be on me pretty right. soon or move on. The gig is up. Yeah. And these are all, wait, you know, the thing I want to impress upon people is we're doing the best we can. On an unconscious level, we are trying to take care of ourselves. So I want people to appreciate their pattern and to really dig a little deeper and ask, like, what does this pattern help me avoid? What does it protect me from? And what does it help me get? Because we get something out of these patterns. It sounds like all of these, uh, these seven coping mechanisms are normal human behavior. But I just want to emphasize what you're saying is, are you using them in a way to kind of undermine yourself and your success? Well, it's more than using them in a way to protect yourself. Okay. See, here's the thing. So on the one hand, you want to look at how does my pattern serve me? Because if it, if you weren't getting something out of it, Andrea, you would have given it up a long time ago. Once you understand what you're getting out of it, you know, it helps me avoid scrutiny or humiliation or disappointment or failure. If I procrastinate, guess what? I get time to do stuff I'd rather do. If I work like ridiculously hard, I'm probably going to be successful. So there's something in it. The important thing, and this is based on the work of, of Gerald Weinstein, long now since retired professor at UMass Amherst, where I went. The next step of that kind of uh, pattern awareness process is to n- then say, okay, this is what I get, but you never get something for nothing, is what Jerry would say. Mm-hmm. Then you ask yourself, what if I never, you know, what if I just always continue this pattern? What what would the price be? What opportunities and experiences might I miss out on? Like, what is the cost? What will happen if I never change it? Once you understand, here's what I get. Here's the price I pay. Now you can make a conscious decision. Yeah. You might say, you know what? I'm going to keep my lousy pattern. It's working for me. <laughs> nice. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not giving it up. Or you say the price is too high and then you can make some shifts. As someone who got sober 12 years ago, there's some direct correlations with that kind of thinking. So it's so fascinating. Can you, I am the one of the seven coping mechanisms I want to ask you about, because I'm not super clear on this one and I have a suspicion it might be one that I use. It's number three, the use of charm and perceptiveness. What is that Mm -hmm. one? That's what Clance Clance and I identified that one. They identified, I think, four of them and I added the other three. Basically, they were working a lot with with graduate students and medical students and folks on college campuses. And they would find in some cases they would kind of psych out their professors and kind of figure out how they wanted their work done or kind of gear their work to their professors, kind of pet P, you know, pet projects. Mm -hmm. And then ask themselves if they really knew what I wanted to do, would they think I was so great? Or they would use like humor, you know, and charm and then kind of, you know, if only the person, the right person would notice my brilliance, right? So they would dazzle them with their personality. Once the person noticed them, they're like, well, what do they know? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. It's like, and you dismiss them because you now you don't believe them because you think it's only because they like me. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I would go meet with my faculty advisor when I was a graduate student, I he was a funny guy. I would never go in there without a joke or a funny story. You know, if I could just keep them laughing, we don't have to talk about my research. 
Right. We don't have to talk about the the actual work. I We need to take an ad break, but when we come back, speaking of research, I want to talk about research and what it shows with uh, women's competence in the workplace. We'll be right back. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. With Shopify POS, you can accept credit cards, mobile payments, and every other major payment method, all with low fees and transparent pricing, starting on day one. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash noise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash noise to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash noise. I first gave AG1 a try because I was feeling low energy and sluggish and coffee just wasn't giving me what I needed. Especially in these winter months, I struggle with pep in my step. And since drinking AG1, I felt more energized and focused. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. Because aging is a part of life that we all have to deal with, but I don't think it should prevent me from doing the things I love, like going on long hikes with my dog. I want to do the things that matter to me for as long as possible, which is why I drink AG1 every morning to support my brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm laying the groundwork for long-term health. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process so you know it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to have them as a longtime partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com noise. That's drinkag1.com noise. Check it out. All right. Can you tell us what the research shows in terms of the the competence of women in the workplace? Well, one thing I can say, there's there's a book called like, Why Are All the Incompetent Leaders Men? <laughs> and you. and there's a wonderful TED Talk. The guy's an Argentinian researcher and mm-hmm. he's at Oxford and Harvard. Very engaging. So the research shows that everyone overestimates their abilities. Like, how do you think you're going to do on this exam kind of thing? Okay. But men over-exaggerate there's 30% more often and higher than women do. And women tend to underestimate their success and their competence. Gener- I'm generalizing. Their abilities. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's a, that's a whole nother po- conversation for, for another podcast. <laughs> I, in, I know in your book, you talk about rethinking, risk-taking and cultivating chutzpah, uh, which I, I never feel like I pronounced that correctly. Can you talk? Can you talk about that a little bit? There's a perception that women are not risk takers. And I kind of invited readers to rethink that. I think 
having children is pretty darn risky, right? Sure. Putting all your eggs in one basket. You know, historically, women relied on a, a, a man to provide. And let, let's hope he sticks with you for the rest of your life. Otherwise, you're screwed. Women take more risks in emotional realms, in in, in vulnerability and and sharing in ways that might be terrifying to some men. You know, they're, they're uh, they might be a little more risk averse around finances, but I think it's partly a survival kind of thing. But I do think that we can and should stretch our risk taking muscles a little bit. Yeah. So uh, I did have a chapter on. Uh, Hutzpah, which is just a lovely, you know, uh, y- Yiddish term. Yes, <laughs> thank you for pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> well, you know, I think I am. I am not one hundred percent sure, but you know, I include. I remember. I, funny, I was walking my dog, thinking of the story this morning for some reason. I can't remember her name, but there was a, a woman who had written a children's book, and she was trying to get a, you know, get into a bookstore to do a reading, and people would say, well, you know, have us have your agent call me. So she turned herself into like Holly Smith agent, right? She would call and book these things. It was the same person, mm-hmm. and, and she had all these. She, every time she called a bookstore, she learned something new about how to get in, and so she would apply it. But so anyway, she's Holly Smith. And she finally gets this big book signing and there's a line outside and they're all coming in. And, and the person who brought her in said you know, something like, wow, you, you sound so much like Holly. And she said, yeah, people say we look a lot like too. <laughs> you know, in Steven Spielberg, there was this you know famous story about how he, when he was a young kid, he went on a tour of the studios in Hollywood on the little tram. He kind of hopped off at a rest stop, didn't get back on, mm-hmm. introduced himself to somebody there said, I've got some movies. I'd love to show you. Oh, sure, kid, come back anytime, right? So he shows the guy's stuff. The guy's encouraging, but, you know, he's a young kid, so that's it. Well, he just shows up one day with a briefcase with a sandwich in it, nothing else, walks into an empty office, sets up his office, puts his name in little white letters out on the board in the hall, right? Just He became a squatter, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to kind of make connections if you people think you're already on, on the inside. Yeah. If you belong there. That's so interesting. The whole conversation around risk-taking is is fascinating. And I've I've seen some some research that points to small children and the way that, you know, it's it's gender specific in the way that little boys are from toddler age, little boys are treated versus little girls and, and little boys in their rough housing, they're they're encouraged to take risks even at that that age. And that kind of social conditioning matters as yeah. as we grow up. By no means I'm an expert on this, but I, I also think that some of it comes down to personality. I and, I and I think I'm lucky in that regard and that I was both born with the personality of of high risk. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, my ADHD and just let me tell you like high risk is not great around drugs and alcohol everyone. Like I don't recommend it. <laughs> However, and another thing my one of the pieces of advice my dad gave me at such a young age, I grew up on the tennis court. Um both my player, parents were avid tennis players and my dad would always tell me when he was teaching me how to how to play tennis is always rush the net, always rush the net. Mm. And and what he would tell me is it's not just about your confidence in, because it's a, it's a vulnerable position and when you're playing singles and in, in tennis to be at the net. However, it's intimidating to your opponent. And that's what he told me and in life as well. And I learned that it's, I'm still, I'm lucky I learned that at such a young age because when I was younger, I was a little bit more shy, but I've taken that advice with me. And when I when I'm, you know, hovering over the keyboard about to email someone or or take some whatever kind of risk it is, I hear my dad saying, like, rush the net, kiddo, just rush the net. I say all that for my listeners. You know, it's never too late 
to learn how to rush the net. It's never too late how to how to to learn how to take risks. It's just flexing the muscle and practicing because sometimes you're going to fall on your face. Absolutely, and it's like, what's the worst that can happen? You you don't win the game. That's not right. the end of the world. You, there's going to be another game. You'll survive it, and you'll. That's how you build resilience. I, I'm really glad you brought that up, um, Andrew, because I think sports offer you know a wonderful uh, analogy. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is. Every game, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to be crying on the bench. Yep. The team that's crying on the bench, they don't hang their uniform up and go home, right? Which is what happens often with young people in STEM. They just kind of drop out when they flunk one course. Um, and I guess I'm not qualified or, or, you know, their business doesn't make a profit in the first month. Oh, I guess I'm not successful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they go watch the game tape. They figure out what they could do differently. They practice more. They get more coaching and they say, Let's get them again. I do want to comment. I do think socialization does matter. I, I, I'm sure my niece will not hear this, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. But I watch her husband with my niece when she was like three. He was constantly saying, "Be careful, little girl. Be careful, little girl." Like as she was running in the living room, you know, the message was constantly danger, danger. You know, be careful. And now she is so tentative as a five-year-old like oh I don't want to walk across the scary rocks you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and I really wonder how much that got instilled at least somewhat I'm sure I want to circle back to to one thing I think that that you commonly probably hear in in the work that you do and that because some people say that imposter syndrome is actually a good thing so do you agree with any part of that I do not and, okay. and let me tell you why. I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> Please expand. <laughs> I honestly yeah. didn't know what you were going to say. You know, it's funny because these different narratives all popped up around 2011. And and that was one I kind of dug into to like, where is this coming from? Because it's a you know, great TED Talks from this lovely entrepreneur, this guy from uh, Australia who talks of about it. it was a man. Good uh-huh. thing. Uh, Adam Grant has it in his book. It's a good thing. Uh, Seth Godin, marketing guru. He says, don't you dare try to get rid of your imposter syndrome. So he would, Godin would say, you need it for creativity. Adam Grant would say it motivates us to work harder and it keeps us humble. So mm-hmm. those are the main reasons I hear. I look at it like, oh, it means we're learning. So first of all, are we saying that you have to feel inadequate to be learning and to be creative? I don't think so, personally. I don't either. This idea, you know, the, the humility thing, I think that does work for some men for whom hubris is more of an issue, uh, more of a they, they do need to probably work at tamping it down. Mm-hmm. In 40 years, I have never heard one woman, Andrea, not, not one woman say, you know, I think I'm going to keep my self-doubt because it keeps me humble. Yeah. I've never heard that. So I don't think that's an issue. The, the other one is this idea that it motivates us to work harder. You know, a lot of respect for Adam Grant, but in his book, he says it motivates us to work harder. He said it may not help if you're like trying to decide to get into the race, but once you're in the race, it helps. Well, guess what? A lot of people aren't getting in the race because of right. imposter syndrome. They're in not the starting their businesses, scaling their businesses, going to school, going for promotion. So let's not leave them out. But even then, he's got a little asterisk and he's got a footnote. And it's in like seven point type that says, basically, by the way, the research shows women are less propelled by self-doubt. It may motivate men. So if that works for you, great. But but I would say, can we find a healthier motivation? For working harder other than trying to outrun the imposter patrol. And importantly, I think it's a false choice. This idea that you could be an arrogant jerk who's kind of dialing it in, who's not creative, 
or you can feel like an imposter. That's what we're presented with, either or. And I think there's a, a third choice, a healthier choice, and that is to become what I refer to as a humble realist. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is genuinely humble, but has never had imposter feelings. And it's not because they're more competent. It's because they have a realistic understanding of what it means to be competent. They have a healthy response to failure, mistakes, constructive feedback, which let's face it, we it feels like criticism to us. Yeah. And they understand that a certain amount of fear and self-doubt are part of the achievement journey, which means they're not expecting themselves to feel confident 24-7. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, the, that last part is mixed in some, some emotional intelligence there. What you were saying reminds me of, you know, the whole concept of that imposter syndrome, you know, kind of, kind of propels you to, to be more successful, productive, et cetera. It reminds me of when people say, you know, you can say shame changes people's behavior. It it works. It will change behavior on a dime, but in right. the long run, it's destructive. It's incredibly destructive to people, exactly. to relationships, to yourself. It's like so on from every angle. And I just I cannot believe it was a footnote. Like it deserved an entire like subsection in the chapter. Just looking at the research between men and women and how imposter syndrome differs there. Yeah, and I think it's also based on this false premise that imposter syndrome primarily affects high achievers. Mm-hmm. And I think it affects people for whom who could do more yeah. if they chose to, were it not for nagging self-doubt. We probably should take another break before I get into my next question. So we'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.
Okay. I would love to not just talk about the problem, but can we talk about solution? And I'm going to, I'm going to quote from your, from your website. It says imposter syndrome demands immediately usable solutions. The goal is not to fix anyone, rather it's to provide the information, insight, and tools needed to effectively address normal imposter feelings and help those understand the signs of imposter phenomenon. Importantly, these same tools can be applied at both the employee and organizational level. So can you, can you, that's where I I want, I would love for you to talk about a little bit is work because I'm assuming people are listening to this and thinking that's great, but can you, can you tell all this to my boss? (laughs) Because they're kind of the, they, they built the workplace that makes me feel like an imposter. Like what, what is your take on that? I think workplace culture can play a role in fueling self-doubt. I think there are certain industries and sectors on a larger level, like academia, which is a culture of critique medicine, which is a culture of shaming, especially with medical students and residents, which are overarching. It wouldn't matter what workplace you went to, the overarching culture, you know, uh, feeds into and fuels imposter syndrome. But I don't think it is the core source of imposter feelings. We do have to look at societal factors. You know, if you're the first, the few or the only person who looks like you and you've got kind of pressure to represent your entire group, and you're on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence or intelligence, whether it's based on age, class, gender, race, disability, language. Those are all very important factors. And I think we need to do more contextualizing and less personalizing. At the same time, I don't think it is the the only source. Managers do need to become imposter syndrome informed. But a lot of leaders themselves also experience imposter feelings. So I think we can make a lot of interventions in organizations. There's a lot of movement around this concept of psychological safety, which Amy Edmonds, Edmonds or Edmondson, I'm not sure, pioneered. So people feel comfortable speaking up in a meeting, saying, I don't understand, innovating, sharing Mm -hmm. ideas. To me, the missing link there is, yeah, you can make all these organizational changes you want, but if internally... My understanding of what it means to be competent is you know, perfection. It, it's knowing 150%. It's never needing any help. It's excelling in multiple roles simultaneously, doing things effortlessly and easily. It doesn't matter what the organization does. I'm going to operate out of that misunderstanding of what it means to be competent. That so sounds like it's it's both. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this. It's one of those things I think that's just can be insidious and sneaky in our lives. And I know that you've, you know, you've spent most of your, your career uh, studying it. So I appreciate your time. And is there anything you wanted to circle back to before we close up in order to feel complete underscore, say something new? You know, I I think I would. And I think what I find Andrea is what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, right? Mm -hmm. They want to read a book and at the end, like, Oh, okay, done. Got that. You know, or go to a workshop or a talk and walk in feeling like an imposter and leave not feeling like an imposter. Check off the box. Yeah. And that's not how it works. The feelings are the last change. So my really mantra is the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. So change your thoughts first to think like a humble realist, then act like you believe the new thoughts, even though you don't, but Mm -hmm. act like you believe them. And over time, the feelings will change and the confidence will catch up. I love that. One of the things I do is kind of just like last last note for people listening that might be helpful. And I wrote about this, I think in my third book, when I'm having imposter feelings, thoughts, and just like, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't do that, or I'm definitely not qualified for that. I 
love the character Cha-Cha de Gregorio from the movie Grease. She has such a small part, but the confidence that that woman has is off the charts. Like it's more symbolic than anything. And I ask myself, what would Cha-Cha do? Like she would definitely go for it. And like, it wouldn't even be a second thought. So, you know, whoever that, that person is that where whether it's a character, alter ego, what would what would Dr. Valerie Young do? What would what would Lady Gaga do? Michelle Obama do? What would you know? Billie Jean King. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, where can people go to? You know, we'll put the link to to your book and your website in the show notes. But where would you like people to go to learn more about you or your work? You know, they, honestly, they can just go to impostorsyndrome.com. I've had that domain since 1995. So, oh I mean, my gosh, forever! Oh, that was like the beginning of the internet. It was the World Wide Web. Yeah. WWW. So, exactly, exactly. That's amazing. Again, everyone, we'll we'll have that link in the show notes. Thank you for joining me and my guests. I appreciate all of you so much. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I would be so incredibly grateful if you haven't done so already, if you could leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Super easy if you already listen to your shows over there. Um, But if you don't, or maybe you have the app on your phone, but you listen to the show on a different app, if you could leave a review for this show, it matters so much. I wish I could express how much it matters. I also wish that it didn't matter so much, but alas, it does. So if you haven't already, please go review and rate the show. It would mean so much to me. And thank you so much. I hope you have an amazing day. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.